You're listening to a CNA podcast. Welcome to the CNA Correspondent Podcast, where we dive deeper into the big stories and give you insight on the most pressing issues across Asia and beyond. In this episode, you'll hear about the global security risks that came to the fore at the 20th Shangri-La Dialogue. Leaders and officials from more than 40 countries have begun arriving here in Singapore for Asia's highest level defense summit. Asia's premier defense gathering took place in early June, and it provided an opportunity for allies and adversaries to engage in dialogue in the interest of peace. Though not all chose to take it. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says it's, quote, unfortunate that his Chinese counterpart has declined to meet him at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore this week. Mr. Austin says both countries need to communicate to prevent dangerous encounters between military aircraft. That statement followed two military close shaves. First, a Chinese jet buzzed an American plane over the South China Sea. Then, a Chinese warship cut into the path of a U.S. destroyer in the Taiwan Strait. Our correspondent, Jeremy Koh, is a veteran reporter of the Shangri-La Dialogue. He covered the latest edition and joins me now to talk you through it. Jeremy, I want to get your thoughts on China's refusal to meet with the U.S. officials and also the two military close calls. But first, can you give us a quick overview of the Shangri-La Dialogue and remind us of its significance in the region? Well, the Shangri-La Dialogue is an annual gathering of defense ministers and it's the most important platform that provides countries, about 40 countries, uh, slightly more than 40 countries that take part every year with an avenue to engage in dialogue that would not have been possible according to what analysts have been saying. So this can not only prevent conflict from taking place, it can also help to inform uh, policy making. And senior officials from, for instance, this time around, senior officials from about two dozen of the world's major intelligence agencies held a secret meeting on the fringes of the Shangri-La Dialogue. That's according to uh, some reports as well. Now, officials from China and the US uh, who are you know under the spotlight this time around, as with all other Shangri-La Dialogue sessions, they were among the two dozen of the world's uh, major intelligence agencies that held a secret meeting on the sidelines of the, the dialogue. And according to some uh, analysts, you know, there is an unspoken code about how this intelligence services work. You know, when formal and open diplomacy is hard, you know, there are all these uh, other dialogues that take place on the sidelines of major events. And the Shangri-La Dialogue, in, in a way, helps to facilitate uh, meetings such as that. Okay, so you're saying that even if outwardly they don't want to talk, there are still talks going lower on. Lower levels, yeah. At lower levels, okay. And do we know what those talks involve when it comes to security issues? No, it's top secret. I've been reading the reports and there haven't been, you know, a lot of information that's come out from those talks as well. But presumably, US-China tensions, Ukraine war, these are the issues that will come out. Taiwan as well. Okay, and if we come back then to the main key themes and topics that are discussed openly and speeches being made and discussion sessions and such, a lot of those topics will be the same, won't they? Of course. I mean, take, taking center stage at this year's event, like with all other Shangri-La dialogues in recent years, is the US-China rivalry. Ahead of the summit, we, we know that China has rejected US efforts to set up a meeting between the US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin as well as uh, Li Shangfu, uh, which is the Chinese counterpart. So Beijing says that Washington should show sincerity and create necessary conditions for dialogue. And despite all that, there is no substantive meeting between both men. But there was a shaking of hands, you know, on the sidelines of uh, one of the events on Friday, which is the first day of the Shangri-La Dialogue. You mentioned a handshake that took place between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and China's Defense Minister Li Shangfu during the opening dinner. Were you in the room when that happened? No, I wasn't, unfortunately. But uh, I've seen pictures and videos of that. Uh, 
Well, that, that meeting isn't entirely unexpected. I mean, it's more surprising if they took pains to really avoid each other during the three-day session. Having said that, though, I mean, just a handshake, that's not substantive at all. It's just, uh, you know, a very cordial greeting. So we shouldn't read too much into we sh- it. We shouldn't read too much. I mean, I've spoken to some analysts ahead of the dialogue. They said that even if they do meet, just shaking hands, it doesn't mean the tensions have eased. It's just, you know, the two men being polite. So we knew that uh, US-China rivalry was going to dominate the talks ahead of this summit. So if you talk about whether we're surprised uh, by what's happening, I think we'll be more surprised if there had been a big breakthrough because US-China tensions are at the lowest point in decades with all that's going on, China's human rights records, Taiwan, China's position on Ukraine, etc., etc. So we expected that there would be no breakthrough. Uh, in some ways, Lloyd Austin's speech was less pointed than last year. Both countries were basically trading barbs at each other. So why there wasn't a meeting, the US clearly wanted one. But China demanded that the Washington lift sanctions imposed in 2018 on Li Fu for procuring Russian weapons. And experts have said that Beijing sees communication as something that should happen only when ties are good, whereas the US sees communication as something that should happen when ties are bad to prevent things from going on. So clearly we see two visions that are happening. So let's listen to what a Chinese official has to say. The US has been strengthening its military presence in the Asia-Pacific region, consolidating bilateral military alliances and beefing the AUKUS trilateral partnership, the Quad and the Five Eyes Alliance. The US also previously claimed to change China's strategic environment. What should we call this other than confrontation? Having created chaos in the Middle East and brought instability to Europe, is the US trying to destabilize the Asia-Pacific? We will never allow this to happen. So clearly two different visions of how communication works. The US wanting communications when times are bad. China only wanting to communicate when things have improved. So where does that leave things now, especially following those two near misses that we saw in the Taiwan Strait and above the South China Sea? Well, clearly ties remain very tense and they will remain tense for the foreseeable future. There's a lot of distrust at the military level, as we've seen over you know, the Shangri-La weekend. Chinese Defence Minister issued a very vivid warning to unfriendly warships sailing through the Taiwan Strait. He used a very well-known Chinese song, which goes something like that. When friends visit us, we welcome them with fine wine. And when, when jackals or wolves come, we will face them with shotguns. So very, very pointed words, even though he cited some lyrics. So clearly, ties will not improve at the military level. But even having said that, even though defense dialogue has stalled, US-China economic talks have resumed. The US Commerce Secretary has met with her Chinese counterpart in Washington. That was the first bilateral cabinet-level encounter since the spy balloon incident in February. And that just came days after President Joe Biden stressed that a thaw in bilateral relations would occur soon. We also know that a CIA director visited China last month for talks with his Chinese counterparts. So clearly on some levels, there's some sort of dialogue that's taking place, just not at a military level. Yeah, it does seem to be one of those things where one week something might happen but in a positive sense and yeah. the, the following week there's a bit of a setback. So we're just sort of watching the to and fro and the back and yeah. forth as this unfolds. Next on CNA Correspondent, I'll ask Jeremy about how other countries, not just in Asia, view the Taiwan issue and the implications of the Ukraine war and its impact on the region's security and stability. <music> Thank you. 
Hey everyone, my name's Stephen Chia, and I'm host of CNA's weekly news podcast, Heart of the Matter. Now, each week, my job is to ask questions you have, like why is the COE so high? Why aren't singles dating? Or what is going on with the red-hot property market in Singapore? If you want the views behind the news, then tune in each week as we get to the heart of the matter. We are on the CNA and Me Listen apps and wherever you get your podcasts. Hit follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode when it drops. You're back with me, Steve Lai, and CNA correspondent featuring Jeremy Ko, and we'll pick up with the Taiwan question. Uh, Jeremy, we can't mention the China-US relationship without mentioning Taiwan, but the summit was an opportunity for other countries to voice their concerns over security of the strait. What was their consensus? There was no consensus. I mean, if you listen to what Chinese Defense Minister Li Shanfu was saying, his focus on Taiwan, according to some analysts, reflects Beijing's concerns over the increasing international focus on cross-strait issues, in particularly Taiwan. So in his speech, he said that the Taiwan question is a core interest and a Chinese internal affair that brooks no interference from foreign forces. That's not entirely new. We've heard that from various Chinese officials over the years. And he also took the opportunity to take a very thinly veiled jab at the US. He complained about countries that raised tensions by repeatedly selling arms to Taiwan, providing it with military training and upgrading the level of official bilateral exchanges. So clearly, these are things that China has been accusing the US of doing for many, many, many years now. So it's not entirely new at the Shangri-La Dialogue. And on the other side, we've heard uh, US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin saying that a war on Taiwan would be devastating and it would affect the global economy in ways that we cannot imagine. So clearly, once again, very different visions from both sides. Lloyd Austin saying that conflict is neither imminent or inevitable and deterrence is very strong, whereas China is in a way more strong about their remarks. Yeah. The bottom line of that, though, is that the, the status quo of how things are at the moment kind of works for both countries, yes, doesn't it? Does. it? So while all this rhetoric goes on, there is an incentive for both of them to, to not push the needle too far. If you speak to analysts, I mean, everyone says that both it's in both countries' interest to maintain the status quo. But clearly, we've seen that status quo moving towards some sort of confrontation. That status quo during the CMA summit in Singapore, for instance, there was a thaw in bilateral, in cross-street relations then. So ties were at the best in decades. Subsequently, after Trump came to power, after Joe Biden came to power particularly, ties between both China and US have really, really plunged. So the status quo today would really involve that one China position, etc., etc. But we also see a lot of movements in the Taiwan Straits as well. So that status quo is different from the status quo, uh, say, 10 years ago. Let's move to events further afield. Ukraine also featured heavily at the talks. In fact, there was a bigger than usual European contingent at the summit. Why was that? European leaders were also in town and they, they were hoping to use the summit to mobilize support for Kyiv. The war in Ukraine has been going on for more than a year and they were hoping to mobilize support for Kyiv among Asian countries. And there were a high-profile grouping of officials including the EU foreign policy chief, the Ukrainian defense minister, the British Def- defense minister and they were all here at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue. And as you know, this Ukraine conflict has been hovering as a specter, as a backdrop of all the meetings that are taking place 
last year it was overshadowed by the war because that was just uh, about four months after it took place. But this year, one and a half years on, uh, it's not just about the war, but also how to move on from the war, how to end it as well. So this is part of the uh, broader geopolitical concerns in Asia as well. And also countries here are also thinking, the Ukraine conflict has also reshaped the thinking of uh, several countries in this region. But what's really surprising was uh, Indonesian Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto's comments about peace plan to draw an end to the war in Ukraine. He proposed a settlement that would usher in an immediate cessation of hostilities and compel both countries, uh, Russia and Ukraine, to withdraw 15 kilometers from their current positions to create a demilitarized buffer zone, somewhat like, you know, in the Koreas as well, and also lead to a staging of UN-backed referendums in disputed territories. But that proposal triggered a swift backlash because that would involve some sort of surrender on Ukraine's part and also... It also means that Russia's aggression would be rewarded by some sort of territorial gains as well. So, of course, Ukraine has rejected that plan. Yeah, and last year, President Zelensky made an, an, a key address yes. during the dialogue. But this time around, the defense minister was there in person, is that right? Yes, he was. And he was the one, I suppose, that pushed back on that plan. Yes, he was. And not just him. The EU's top diplomat also set on, on state, also rejected what he described as the peace of the cemeteries, a peace of surrender. And he argued that Russian aggression should not be rewarded by further territorial concessions. The German minister, defense minister Boris Pictorius said that the war in Ukraine and the reckoning it forced on the continent was a wake-up call with far-reaching implications. So he also announced that his uh, nation would dispatch a frigate and a supply ship to the South China Sea for freedom of navigation exercises. His British counterpart, Ben Wallace, also touted his government's permanent deployment of two warships in the region. So all these taken together really uh, adds to Beijing's fears of some sort of uh, geopolitical encirclement by the US and its allies in this region. And that's what China has been saying as well. Uh, there's some sort of fear that a NATO alliance would arrive in our part of the world. And that's something that China doesn't really want. Jeremy, China, US, Taiwan, Ukraine, those are the big sort of ticket items for the Shangri-La Dialogue. But what else was covered that you think our listeners should be aware of? Well, we've really focused on the China-US tensions, but that's also a very interesting thing that came out at this summit as well. That about China and US offering very competing security visions for the Asia-Pacific. So at this summit, Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu introduced, he elaborated on the global security initiative that was proposed by Chinese President Xi Jinping last year. That's a concept of common security, respecting and safeguarding security of every country. Lots of words, but still very vague at this point in time. But clearly, we can see that China is coming up with some sort of vision that's different from what the US is espousing over the years with their intervention in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq as well. China's vision is very different from that. The US Pacific, Asia Pacific security strategy is all about, according to state media, uh, Chinese state media, is about war, division, and small click, whereas China's foreign policy is emphasizing peace, development, and big uh, family. So we will hear more th about that, uh, hopefully. Some analysts have suggested that uh, Li Shangfu was here to gain some sort of buy in on this global security initiative. And if some sort of behind the scenes acceptance of this initiative is taking place, maybe you can hear more from presidency in the coming months or years. And Lastly, Jeremy, we've covered a lot of ground about the different topics that were discussed and the different positions of, of countries involved. But give our listeners a sense of what it's like to actually cover these big summits. You've done many of them through the years. I was there last year, and it can get quite frantic as delegates move between sessions, journalists adjusting for interviews to get reactions. Let our listeners in on some of the inner workings they might not know of. 
Well, there are so many delegations in town, right? I mean, I've been covering the Chinese delegation over the past few years. In the first few years that I covered, it was really, really frantic. I mean, you didn't know when the Chinese delegation was going to give any press conferences. Normally, they do after the US counterparts, you know, speak. They want to give their side, their point of view. So in the first few years, what we did was we hung around outside the ballrooms where the Chinese defense minister or other officials were talking. And we just hung around outside there waiting for them to come out. And we'll just tell them all the way. There was a year, I remember, I, I just ran after them. And they ended up in some secluded corner of Shangri-La Dialogue and gave an impromptu press conference to us anyway. The Chinese state media were all there. They were all in position. We had to jostle for position. So I was like, there was a huge crowd. I just like stuck my hands in among all the reporters and just stuck my microphone there and held there for like I think half an hour or something like that but in the last two years since COVID after COVID anyway China has been you know contacting us about press conferences so there's more heads up we know it's going to take place at a certain suite for instance so we turn up we answer you know it's it's more comfortable for us as well we don't have to jostle for positions uh, but it's a very small room so not everyone can get in so it, we are among a select group of journalists who are allowed uh, to get in to listen to what china has to say i suppose that's an indication of how china has sort of shifted its messaging how yes. it's sort of keener for for international media to hear their side yes. of, of the events that are transpiring. No longer just for Chinese state media. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Just a, a little anecdote. When I was there last year, uh, what struck me was one, the level of security that you have to go through to get into the hotel but also the fact that the hotel is still actually operating and functioning as a hotel. There are guests. Yeah, that's right. There are yeah. guests. So if you've ever been to the Shangri-La in Singapore, you'll know that there's like a two or three story atrium entrance as you go in. And a lot of the meeting rooms for the Shangri-La Dialogue are one level above. And there's like walkways that go around it and meeting rooms off to the sides, left and yes. right. So media... Uh, for our jobs, we have to try and find somewhere where we can report from. Yes. So there's everywhere. There's like people standing up with cameras pointing at them all through the foyer on different levels, on staircases, wherever they can find a spot to, to do their report. And in amongst all of this, you'll see guests of the hotel yes. just going about their daily <laughs> business. And I remember being on the balcony looking down and seeing a family of four, two young kids, a couple, and they were in their like um, bathrobes or the hotel robes and they were making their way down to the swimming, swimming pool, pool just looking bewildered at like <laughs> when we arrived last night it wasn't like this but they yeah. come down this morning and there's just uh, you know hundreds of people in military uniforms in uh, you know jackets and suits and ties yes. and camera equipment and it was just phenomenal to see this sort of juxtaposition of life going on as normal for people on it holiday does. It does, uh, yeah. while you know the leaders <laughs> of all major countries in in terms of defense and security you know, going about their business and having very high-level talks. It's yes, fascinating. It is. You mentioned about people going about their daily lives. You know, what's also interesting is that the moment it ends, after the last dialogue session, plenary session, the staff just swoop in to remove all the stuff within like an hour or so. We are still doing our reports, uh, our live crosses and all that. But you can see that all the facilities are very quickly being dismantled. If you walk into the ballroom like one hour after the, the last plenary session, the chairs are all stacked up. The stage has been dismantled. So it really is a, a very frenetic three days of the Shangri-La Dialogue. You know, people come in, they, they say what they want to say, they meet whoever they want to meet. And after it happens, it ends, life goes on. Like it never happened. Until the next year when you go through it all again. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thank you. The Shangri-La Dialogue is a unique meeting where ministers debate the region's most pressing security challenges, engage in important bilateral talks, and come up with fresh approaches together. 
It is also Asia's premier defense summit and provides a platform for debate among government ministers, senior officials and business leaders, and security experts as well. And though it's not always possible to get parties to engage directly, it is important to keep providing the opportunities for them to do so. The TV version, CNA Correspondent, airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30pm. You can also catch up with it wherever and whenever you like on cna.asia. Do like and subscribe to this podcast version that takes you behind the scenes with our correspondents like Jeremy. Thank you for listening. Our podcast team is made up of Sai Ewin, Crispina Robert, Clara Ong, and me, Steve Lai.